Good morning from Washington, D.C. I'm Paul Kincaid, Director of Congressional Outreach for FMC, the Association of Former Members of Congress. I'd like to welcome all of you to our virtual roundtable. For those of you who have missed previous episodes, I'd invite you to visit our archives at usafmc.org sounds to check out our other programs and to subscribe to Virtual Roundtable as a podcast, either on Spotify or on Apple. This is an interactive discussion, so if you have questions at any time for our panel, simply click the Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom screen, fill out your name and question, and if we choose you, our moderator will call on you to ask your question over audio only to our panel. Again, anytime during the call, simply click the Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom screen to ask your question. The First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States enshrines four critical rights as the law of our land. They are the right to free speech, to freely assemble to change our government, the right to freedom of religion, and the right to a free press. When asked if he would prefer government without newspapers or newspapers without a government, Thomas Jefferson said, quote, I should not hesitate for a moment to prefer the latter. However, Jefferson begun that discussion of the press by noting that for a free government to succeed, the people must fully understand it and that they must have, quote, full information of their affairs through the channels of the public papers, unquote, and that every person should, quote, receive those papers and be capable of reading them. Now, though, America and our world exist in a completely different media landscape than Jefferson could have imagined. The papers, such as they are now, reach us through completely varied media, including his preferred newspapers, TV, radio, internet, and social media. The full transparency provided by Jefferson is also difficult to find. For many Americans, we receive only the news we choose, reinforcing our beliefs and denying the possible accuracy of that with which we don't agree. A belief in the existence of facts is less evident than ever, so a factual understanding of the government and our world is farther away than ever for most media consumers. How do we fix the trust gap between consumers and their media? What does journalism mean right now? How does its coverage drive a narrative around our politics, and how does that narrative obscure other issues? How does American journalism differ from that around the world? We have a wonderful panel to discuss those issues and more this morning. Jake Schlesinger is senior Washington correspondent for the Wall Street Journal in Washington. He previously covered trade and globalization and served as the journal's global financial regulation editor, as well as deputy Washington bureau chief. Elmer Thevesen has served as bureau chief of ZDF Television in Germany for, from, 19, or from 2019 here in Washington, D.C. For 12 years before that, he served as deputy editor-in-chief for news and current affairs with ZDF in Berlin and has worked for the German television giant since 1991. Elmar is actually on a 4,000-mile road trip across the United States to learn about voters all over our country, and he joins us from the road in Ohio. Takami Hanazawa is the Washington Bureau Chief for Kyoto News in Japan. He joined Kyoto News in 1988 and covered the Second Intifada and the war in Afghanistan as their reporter in their Cairo Bureau. Following that, he was assigned to Los Angeles as Bureau Chief and covered American gun culture. Our moderator today, former Congressman Dan Maffei, worked on both sides of the microphone in politics, covering it as a reporter in Syracuse and working as a communications staffer for Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, Ways and Means Chair Charlie Rangel, and presidential candidate Bill Bradley. He was then elected to Congress himself, serving in upstate New York. I'm certain he has some great questions to ask, and I look forward to the answers, as I know you all do. Congressman, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Paul, and thank you very much to uh, the um, Association of Former Members of Congress uh, for sponsoring this um, in, important uh, and very timely discussion. Um, we're very, very fortunate to have three extremely uh, professional and credible journalists um, who cover uh, for various uh, uh, countries around the world, Germany, uh, Japan, and of course, the United States. And, um, and, the, and all of them have uh, somewhat international audiences too. Um, 
so the first question I want to ask is, uh, of course, the, the question that has to, uh, I think, start any conversation of, of journalism these days is what is journalism? Um, and the three of you I know are journalists. Uh, I think anybody would identify all three of you as, as journalists. Um, but uh, beyond that, I think it's quite confusing. So I'll just ask each one of you, what are your, as a journalist, what are your goals um, in, uh, in the work we'll, we do? And I'll, I'll start uh, with uh, Elmar. Thanks, Dan, and thank you, everyone, for having me. Uh, good morning. Um, I became a journalist because I believe in the specific role of journalism in a society and in a democracy, which means gathering all information that is necessary and that people, citizens in a country need in order to make their decisions. So we are the gatherers of information. And at the same time, we are not only providing this information and handing it over um, from one side to the other, but also we have the duty as journalists to uh, tell the audience um, what, um, what the significance of the information is in combination with, with current events. That's a discussion that is as old as history writing. Uh, as you might know that it's always the question if we only present what has happened, only the events and the facts, or if we also should provide some content, some background, some perspective on what we are actually reporting on. And I believe that is the role of journalism to do both without um, putting our opinions over the facts and the information that we provide the society with. Very, very good. Um, we'll go uh, next to Takami-san. Um, what is your perspective on the work you do and, and uh, how does it define journalism? Hi, um, thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. I was so excited to be here. Uh, I have two goals. I have two goals at this moment. I mean, as a journalist, I was always having, having, uh, having uh, goals twofold. One is towards the power. And the other thing is watch the change of the, the world and the society community. Um, uh, to watch the, what's the power down in Japan, we always, I always wanted to be a kind of a fly. I always call myself fly buzzing, buzzing around the ear of the power, powerful people, starting from the prime minister down to the high officials of the administrations. And uh, to getting close to their face, we listen, uh, we listen and smell anything coming out of their, their body and head and to, so that people, people can understand what the power is in the powerful people are in the mind, in their mind. And the other thing is to watch the change of the uh, history and the society and uh, community, society and uh, political structure. For example, in, in United States, uh, there are too, way too many whys, why the fundamental, caused by fundamental changes uh, from Japanese viewpoint. Why Mr. Trump was elected four years ago, why he has a still good chance to be re-elected, why immigrants have to, have to immigrants uh, to some extent uh, being kicking out of the country and why there are uh, heavily armed militias walking around, walking around the peaceful, peaceful demonstration. And there are reasons, and there are reasons of the change, fundamental change in the United States that I would like to relate to Japan. And the, the other specific goal is to write, uh, to report quick, 
report about uh, fast and faster than other other media outlets uh, the changes of American policy, that diplomacy, especially uh, regarding the Far, Far Eastern region security issue. That's the two points I like I, 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 as a goal in my mind. Great, uh, Jake. Yeah, um, first, thanks, Dan, uh, and uh, to my fellow panelists and to the audience. Um, it's an honor to be joining this group. Um, so to answer your question, I guess I would echo my fellow panelists and particularly what Elmar said, which is, you know, this is a period of great change, both in the media industry and in society in so many ways. But I think it's important to remember that the core principles of journalism are probably the same as they've been for centuries, which is really... Um, to gather information and to make sense of it for people. Um, I think one big change from when I and I think my fellow panelists um, uh, uh, you know, first started in journalism is that I think for a lot of us when we first started decades ago, our role was primarily to provide people with information that they couldn't get anyplace else, even basic information. You know, now people have that information firsthand, whether it's through Twitter or websites that they follow or Facebook and so, I think that shifts the balance of our role more toward providing exclusive information or making sense of the information overload. Um, but I think the core mission remains the same as it has been throughout the history of journalism. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, Jake, you use the uh, term information overload. Um, I know the three of you are journalists, but most of the sources on the internet, it, it, it's, it's uh, and I, I'll say this, it's, it's not, a matter of uh, journalist or not journalist, it seems to be more of a continuum, but you see all sorts of people reporting all sorts of things um, with various levels of, of accuracy, although it's difficult to tell. Um, in that environment, um, uh, how does a journalist help sort that out? And I'll, I'll start with you, Jake, but then uh, yeah. definitely the other two should, should chime in. So I think, I mean, that's a great question, Dan, and I guess I would divide it into two parts. I mean, one is how do we ourselves do our job and present the material that we find? And I think, you know, part of that is, is I think it is, uh, it's a much bigger task than it used to be to sift through the sources of information and to try and determine the difference between what's real factual information, what's accurate, what's a real source and what's not. Um, but the other is um, it's a much bigger fight for attention. Um, there was a long period of time when, you know, if you were looking for national news in the United States, um, there were a handful of brands, whether it was newspaper brands or television brands, you know, maybe a half dozen that would tell it to you and everybody had to get their information there. Now, people get their information from a million different places and they don't even come to the Wall Street Journal to get Wall Street Journal stories all the time. A large number of people who read our stories are getting it as a friend posted on Facebook or someone tweeted it out. So that in some ways is the bigger challenge, which is how do you get people to come to the trusted brands as opposed to the other brands or yeah. the other sources? I'm curious as to how that works in, in other countries. Uh, to yeah, I think, I, I think for us, yeah, for us, I think it's the same uh, as you might know this, Alexis Ohanian, uh, one of the founders of Reddit once said, that in times where people can distribute information on all those different platforms, everyone can do that. Uh, in those times, a uh, journalist is even more important because in all that noise that is out there, uh, there is a role to filter out the signal that is really important to make uh, decisions. 
from. And, and that's our role. We have to filter that out. And that, of course, has become much more difficult, not only with the, um, you know, the variety of platforms that we have now, but also because it's easy to fake information. It's easy to create groups that seem to have, you know, the, the authority to, to be authentic and, and provide information that is reliable, but it's not. So we have to have more personnel. We have to invest more resources in order to do the fact-checking, and not only on the, on the information itself, but also on the sources that we have. It has just become more difficult for, for uh, media organizations to do that. Sagami, any, any uh, difference in Japan? Or? Uh, well, we are in the same situation by and large, I think. Uh, we are flooded with the whole information, overload of information, it's a good description. So we are uh, still, we are trying to be a good filter of the information so that people, readers, audience can, can reach the right, correct and accurate information. And, there's, and the other thing we are focusing is a, a, a fast news distribution so that, so that we can stand out of the all other media. Um, media or social media stuff. You said fa fast? Fast. fast? Yeah. Yes. But, but how do you deal with those sort of time pressures and the sort of the collapse of the news cycle? Yeah. Um, when I went to journalism school, you know, things were much different. Um, first of all, some people who went to journalism school became journalists back then. But, um, <laughs> but also the, the media, um, w although it was becoming more of a 24-hour news cycle, there, there was CNN, um, but for the most part, particularly in newspapers, but even on television, you could make sure a story was right before you had to put it up. And I'm wondering how that kind of pressure, um, how do you balance that needing to come up with the story quick, particularly given that if you don't put it online, other misinformation will, will be there, but also making sure you get it right. The thing is you, you really have to make sure you get it right. And uh, I like the slogan that CNN once had, be first, but first be right. Um, and, and it has become more difficult and we need more time. So, and I have reported, for example, on terrorism related issues for more than 20 years in Germany. And I know what it means if, you know, if you have a breaking news event and then all the information is coming in and all the others are reporting things. And specifically in that topic, there's so much misinformation and rumors out there. You really have to hold your horses. You have to make sure that in your editorial staff, you have some authority that actually makes the decision then when to publish something. Um, and no matter if you are 24 hours on the air, you have to withhold the information until you have at least your two sources. Then you can go with it. It has become harder. But if we don't do that, then we don't, then we are not any different than all of those other sources of noise out there. And only if you provide this type of quality journalism, I think you keep your legitimacy as, as journalists and as media organizations. Dan, I, one thing I would weigh in and say there is, um, I think the definition of what a story is has also evolved. Um, I think back in the day when I started and it was mainly print, you know, you had a version of a story and that was it. Now the story is really rolling from the minute that something breaks to, you know, for days. So you can take a very brief, short, 
understated version just to get a headline uh, and a first paragraph out. Um, and sometimes that's enough. I mean, to get on the board, as you say, respond to, to news or what somebody else has done. Um, and then simultaneously take the time that Elmar was talking about to, uh, to make sure that, in fact, it's got the proper balance and nuance. Yeah, although there's also pressure uh, because of what you say, even if, the, even if the story isn't going, to keep it going. And, and there is some concern that journalists do that. I mean, when I was in local news, and maybe this isn't a very good example, but when I was in local TV, even back then, we used to do live shots from parking lots where something happened only three days ago, live. Um, but and that pressure seems to be even greater now. I mean, how, how do journalists know that they're not themselves keeping a story going or affecting a story uh, because of their coverage? Tough question. I'm sorry. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to. Like, well, I, I mean, I, I think that's a fair question. Um, I don't know that there's really a clear answer to it. Um, I, you know, and I know this is another topic that we'll get into a little bit later. Um, but to be honest, sometimes what drives ongoing coverage is ongoing reader interest, um, which we can now gauge in an incredibly precise way. Um, but I don't know that it's as black or white as, you know, you're keeping the story going. There are a lot of different angles into stories. And I think that what you, the challenge, but I think, again, this is an old challenge, not necessarily a new one, is that if there's a topic that you know there is intense interest in, um, there are a lot of different ways to come at it. Um, and so you just find different angles uh, that pick it apart. It's partly perhaps coming at it by providing more background, providing more context. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, but, um, but I think, I mean, there is a bit of a catch 22 and I acknowledge it, which is as people are interested in it, I think it's our obligation to keep finding ways of writing about it. If, if I may, I would like to give an example. Uh, when Please. we had a couple of, when we uh, had a, a terrorist attack a couple of years ago in Berlin, you might remember that, um, there were journalists or so-called journalists, I call them. Uh, out there, you know, filming at the place where it happened, and they were transmitting the pictures live over social media. Um, so you could even see the victims and, you know, all the, uh, all the terror was brought to you at home. Um, and I think there has to be um, a, um, a person in this media organization that stops that from happening, because it's not our duty to provide the terror, it's our duty to provide the contents or context of the terror. Um, and, and you have to balance this out because at the same time, I also believe the media organization as we did back then, we also have to provide real time coverage, which means we had breaking news shows during that event. We didn't show the live pictures from the place where it happened, but we gave perspective contents. We talked to experts, we talked to the police and so on. That I think is then of course satisfying the demand and there is a way to calm people down by doing so as opposed to not reporting because if we don't report, then they will follow whatever there is on social media and probably get 90% of misinformation out of that event. Yeah, um, I do want to bring um, uh, Takami in this because in Japan, of course, um, a huge story seems to always be uh, political scandals. And I do wonder whether you think uh, the, uh, clearly people want to read that. I mean, they want to read it everywhere. It's human nature. But I know in Japan, sometimes the media has been accused of 
of creating scandals or making them worse when they're not there. Do you think that's true? Or do you think that this is just politicians trying to slough the blame off? I think it's always a, it's always a kind of a boxing fight between the journalists journalist and, and the government. Um, sometimes, uh, basically, Japanese mainstream media are doing a good job in terms of finding a scandal of the policy makers. For example, okay, for example, in case of Mr. Abe, former Prime Minister, Mr. Abe's, Abe's personal connection to business, uh, business world, yes. and get, getting extra benefit to those people, and uh, some of them did a pretty much pretty much good good investigative report. But when uh, the government realized that, that that could be a real um, threat to them, their power, they, they kind of start, they start to maneuver, start to maneuver uh, behind the scene, reaching, reaching out, reaching out the reporters, reaching out the uh, media outlet, media outlet uh, executives. And there, there's a small conflict, but basically we don't, we don't find any uh, straight pressure from the government to bend our story. Right. Uh, that's great. I, I do want to remind um, everybody uh, watching and listening to this that you can ask questions. Um, if you're Zoom, press the Q and A button at the bottom of your view screen. We do want to get to questions in about 10, uh, 10 15 minutes uh, from our audience. Um, Jake, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit because I know the most about your employer, obviously, the Wall Street Journal. And um, you, you talked about reader intent, but you do have a luxury in that your readers are, you know, tend to be very well-educated uh, people. Um, and um, they're, you know, they won't, um, you, you're, you're, I believe that the, you, your employer has a, a, a business model that depends on subscription. So you're not necessarily interested in large masses of people, but this particular viewer and, and those people who subscribe won't subscribe very long if there's any facts wrong. So it's a little more compatible. But how do you think in the modern world, how does one you know, take the, the need for viewer or reader interest and make sure that, that you're still giving them the facts right. um, or at least giving them the, the context that isn't, uh, you know, wildly biased. No, that's a really interesting question and a really interesting challenge. And, and you've put a lot of, packed a lot in there. I mean, Sorry. first, you, no, I mean, in a good way. Um, I mean, first talking about the journal, you know, um, it is true that we do have a, a, you know, probably compared to other news organizations, um, a higher end demographic, but um, I should say it's not something we can take for granted and, and, um, and, and can't and don't. Um, we, like most new media organizations, have relied on advertising for a lot of revenue. We are trying to pivot more toward a subscription model, um, but we're not fully there. Um, and we are not in any way trying to contain our, our readership, but we're trying to find new ways of growing it, particularly into newer demographics, particularly younger, younger readers. Um, but to get to your question, I mean, so on the one hand, we devote a lot of energy, more so than I've ever seen, and in increasing with each passing month to trying to gauge reader interest. And we now have full-time staff who are uh, analyzing the metrics of readers and distributing that data to us. Um, we've got people who are devoted to search engine optimization, finding the right words, particularly in headlines that are gonna boost search um, uh, and really turned it into something scientific. A, a colleague of mine used to joke that um, you know, when we all first started, 
we gauge reader interest when you'd sit around the morning news meeting and the managing editor would say, I think readers really want to know this. Uh, and that would be the, the basis on which we would determine what readers wanted. Um, but on the other hand, as you say, you know, you can't let the tail wag the dog. Um, you can't purely let uh, what readers want shape your agenda because in part what they want is for you to tell them what's important. Um, and so that's a difficult balance that we strike. I mean, you alluded to, you know, questions of bias um, and without naming other media organizations, I would say that um, I think what we've seen, particularly in the United States, is that some media on both the left and right uh, have increasingly, arguably ramped up their uh, open um, tilting of their coverage uh, in order to increase readership because they know they've noticed that that's a market advantage. Um, the journal, and again, I'm, I'm obviously I'm biased toward the journal, um, and the journal obviously is well known for having a conservative editorial page and a conservative owner in Rupert Murdoch um, now for the last uh, 13 years or so. But we pride ourselves in having a news page that is straight down the middle. Um, and that's part of our marketing campaign um, we, that we proudly cite polls such as uh, the Pew Charitable Trust that um, does analysis of media reputation uh, among Americans and finds the Wall Street Journal is the one that gets majorities of trust on both the left and the right among readers. And so for us, that's a form of marketing too, which is to try and, and present our news as unbiased as a way of selling ourselves to readers. Good. No, I, I think you dealt with my uh, complex question as, as well as you can. Uh, Columbia Journalism School taught me how to be brief, but, but then I became a politician. And <laughs> um, Elmar, I'm wondering, do you know uh, the business model for your employers? And, and is that, how do you, you know, manage that along with the, the need to be, you know, such a credible journalist and, and cover what you think is important, even if the viewers don't necessarily know it, particularly when you're covering a foreign country? Yeah, uh, I have to admit that I'm in a luxurious position because my company, ZDF, is public television in Germany. We are financed through a fee that everyone has to pay. We are not uh, reporting to the government, um, but we, the, the governments of all the states make the decision about the fee on the recommendation of an independent commission. Uh, the reason why I'm saying that, yeah. we have a budget of 2 billion euros each year available to us to use for the 24-hour program that we do. It's news, it's entertainment, it's everything. Um, so we really are not relying on commercial uh, income. And, and that makes a difference. And uh, so what we have to do and we should do, and we are now doing, although we might have not done it always in the past, number one, revitalize and reinforce ethical guidelines of journalism. Um, to make sure that all our people who work in that part um, are, are based and know the ground rules for journalism. Number two, make all our work totally transparent, which means we tell people, we tell the public how we work, how we make sure that we get it right, how we deal with problems if we don't get it right. We live, we own up to mistakes. We apologize for them. We try to change the processes and we make all that transparent. So that's what we also have to do. Number three, we reach out to our audiences and get feedback from them. And that is more direct than it was in the past. For example, as head of news, I set up a program once a week, right after the main newscast in the evening, we had a half an hour program 
where people could call in or send us in their questions, their criticism, and the editor, the final editor of the show and the anchor, they had to stand there and answer to the criticism and to the questions that came in. That all being said, it helped us to regain some trust that we had lost over the years before. And now the public television uh, networks, there are two in Germany, they have the highest trust from all media within Germany among, of course, um, the German public. Um, I think it's different for commercial companies in Germany because they have to, um, you know, really aim for the ratings, the highest ratings and, you know, revenue from, from uh, advertising and so on. So we are a little bit different from the others here. Yeah, to, to call me, I'm curious as to how it is for you. Yeah, one photo, one quick follow-up. Um, we all, uh, the, the cycle, and the consumption cycle of the news stories are becoming very, very short. Every, you know, before one news story, standing, standing there like a half a day, 20, 12 hours to 24 hours. But now the, the, story, the stories are uh, show, uh, showing up in the smartphone, and the two minutes later, it's old story, and uh, this, that that gives a, that gives us extra pressure to be fast and quick. But uh, we need to be being a journalist. Journalism, we are journalists. We have to be accurate. So we what we're doing is for the investigative report for the for the story, long stories. We always come come with the second and third sources. But sometimes, as a be, being a news wire service, we can't do that. So what we're doing is have making extra sharp eye on the source. And if, if trustworthy, we have to judge and we have to be well connected to the sources so that we can make a quick decision if we, we run the story or not. And then choosing not to run the story is also a very, very important part of our job now as a, as a function of filtering of a news story. Of course, we are having a very in DC, we are, we are having a uh, difficult time, you know, reporting about the White House and uh, Mr. Trump says, no, uh, we have to stay, uh, what, what he says we have to report nonetheless, knowing that some part of uh, his remark is uh, false. But he, but he hasn't kicked you out of the briefing room yet. Yeah. <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Uh, yeah, yeah, good. Um, yeah, I do. I do wonder how. Um, I mean, when I was in journalism school, and again, we're talking about a long, long time ago now. But everything had to be attributed. Um, the, you know, the, a, a, an unnamed source was only allowed. You know, in the, if it was absolutely necessary, and you had to spell out why it was necessary, um, and you needed multiple sources, uh, particularly, and you weren't supposed to sensationalize. You weren't supposed to bury the lead. Um, a lot of these things, frankly, and I'm not going to speak about any of the three of you, your employers, but I see newspapers and uh, networks that have always been considered to be some of the most credible in the United States anyway, where these are not followed, um, including public television, public radio sometimes, um, uh, you know, newspapers uh, major, that major cities uh, have that um, have, you know, normally been considered to be uh, fairly unbiased. Um, is, is this, how do you avoid those kind of pressures? And 
And when those things are going on and people are looking at these stories written under different rules, isn't, isn't that frustrating? I mean, maybe the three of you are able to uh, continue in this environment, but you know that young journalists coming up will probably not have those opportunities. Again, too packed. But, um, I guess I'll, I'll start on that. I mean, just on the question of anonymous sources, I mean, I think that's still the ideal that you avoid, minimize anonymous sources. But unfortunately, in the world that we're in, um, I think if you make it sort of an absolute rule, then it's impossible often to report the news. I mean, partly you have sources who want to get a story out, need to get a story out, um, but it's too much risk for them to be identified. Um, and so in some ways, it gets back to some of the issues we've been talking about, which is um, first, you need a rigorous internal check. I mean, we certainly don't allow anonymous sources without uh, at least one, if not more, editors finding out exactly who those sources are and grilling the reporter on on why they know what they know and who they are. Um, and then it's a hope that you have a bond with your readers who believe and trust your brand, whether it's your individual brand or your uh, your your news company's brand um, to say this is why we're putting out the anonymous source. I mean, I think like a lot of things, it's gotten harder, partly because you know the president, who's very vocal about news coverage, has has really made a big deal about anonymous sources and repeatedly claims they've been made up. Um, you know, I can't speak to all the stories that he speaks to, but you know, there's an irony there in that a lot of times his own administration puts out stories where they don't allow you to identify. <laughs> Um, the officials are the sources who are putting out the information. Um, so it cuts a lot of different ways. But again, I think it has to do with the integrity of your own internal system and the trust that you build and the bond with your readers. Yeah, we also do a lot of grading to the reporters, from the reporters, why why this story came up, why did you, did we, as an editor, we ask many questions, give many questions to the writer, why, uh, what kind of, uh, if he or she wants to stay, stay as anonymous source, make it an anonymous source story, we agree with many directions, with many angles. Why, who, when, oh, if he doesn't want, want to give the name, or what kind of person, title, and uh, timing, and what the purpose. With that, uh, we sometimes run the story with anonymous source. But all, all, of course, there's always a, always a chance and a risk that the story was made, made up. Mm. But we haven't that serious mistake in my 30 years career, I haven't come up, come up with that kind of serious uh, misleading story yet. And, and I think that's the thing. I, uh, the rules are the same for all of us. And I think most media or many media organizations adhere to them. They do what they always do. They check out the sources. They really are very reluctant to use anonymous sources. But if they do, they have vetted them. Uh, and probably there are sources that have been right in the past frequent times. That is a factor for us as well. The problem is there are, and in my view, not real media organizations and journalists, but there are so many other sources out there that put out information that they just made up. There are so many lies and falsehoods. And uh, to be frank, if the president puts out 20,000 lies and, and I'm sorry to say, we have checked those things out. Those are lies. And I'm going to call them lies if I'm asked about it. If a president puts out 20,000 lies, if some of the media platforms that 
see themselves as um, maybe a prolonged or an extension of the of the president do the same thing and do similar things and and i'm i'm sure on the other side on the liberal side we see that as well but to be frank i don't see that as much i do as i do see that on the conservative side and that makes me wonder is it because they want to destroy the credibility of the media like wall street journal our outlets or others that in my view are very, very reliable uh, and they want to just sink us by putting out all those false information. Yeah. Information overload is what uh, Jake I think, yeah. talked about that. Um, <clears throat> I, I want to just uh, shift gears slightly um, and talk about the fact that the, the three of you are at, uh, you know, new, news media that people tune into because of that, but increasingly, um, people follow individual personalities and there's a lot of pressure um, even on newspaper reporters and, and wire service reporters to appear on television and sometimes to even appear on the chat shows, the, the, uh, the ones where you're supposed to put your opinion or analysis. And, um, and, and I, I maybe do talk more about young, more younger reporters coming up in the world. It's very challenging for that. And, and the increasing number of freelancers, um, that there are that, that have to make money based on an article uh, per article. Um, and they need to make a name for themselves. And so they go out there and, and there's a certain, no matter how hard they try, there's always going to be an incentive for them to say something that's more interesting to get them invited back. How do the three of you kind of deal with that, uh, the sort of increasing nature of, of being a journalist and, and being a personality, uh, sort of public personality in, in yourselves? I think, um, and, and we have seen that over the past two decades, um, that there are some colleagues out there who, if they get into a fight with the president or if they appear on television quite frequently, that has an impact on the money they earn. And that is not saying that those are bad journalists. Um, it's just the fact that this happens and it shows how much the um, how would you say the, the, the market is driving um, sometimes even the stories. And if you are a journalist who only has to look at your uh, cell phone uh, on the short messages and, and you have good sources and then you read your short messages, your news information from your best source right into the camera live as soon as it pops up on your cell phone, then this is not journalism anymore because nothing has been vetted then it should be checked out before you actually put it even, on screen even if it, even if it's one of your you said your best sources correct like, yeah even if it's your best source you have to check it out and, and get other sources to see if you you know find some corroboration of that um, and and that is the problem of 24-hour news of course and the market-driven approach um, and I'm not saying those are all, uh, th those are, you know, bad journalists because they have great sources, but I think it's, it's destroying um, the reputation of journalism uh, quite a bit. And we have similar, not as much, but we have similar problems in Germany as well. Jake, yeah, and I, I would just add, um, I mean, you mentioned TV shows um, and that's an issue to follow and perhaps be concerned about, but I think more so than that is Twitter. Yeah, um, good, good point. I, I, everybody has Twitter. Even if you don't appear on TV, 
everyone is supposed to do social well, media. Well, absolutely, that, that it, you know, it's unfiltered, it's unedited, um, and, you know, the incentive there is to build your followers, and the way to build followers often is to be provocative and edgy, which really cuts against what is obviously the goal and incentive of, of an objective journalist. Um, I think, you know, it's increasingly, as you say, that, you know, for much of my career, uh, my uh, presence or personality was based on the fact that my stories would appear in the Wall Street Journal, which had a certain amount of circulation. Increasingly, those things are being disconnected and reporters are being told it's your obligation uh, to build your own brand. Um, and I don't have a good answer to that other than I think it's, it's time consuming and it's a delicate balance. And um, it does change fundamentally in some ways the nature of what you do. But again, you need to kind of stick to your principles as much as you can. Interesting. Takami-san, any thoughts yeah, on that? What's happening? I, I was very interesting, interested. There are some uh, so-called uh, YouTube journalists. YouTube, YouTube journalists have uh, appearing in Japan, and some of them are really good in terms of analysis of the stories and appeal. And they people like the journalists with the faces, not just the text, not just voices, yeah. not just audios, but yeah. the faces coming out with the, the so-called journalists. And uh, some of them came up, uh, are very, became very sh small number, but became so popular and ended up becoming a member of parliament. So that kind of new stream of uh, new area of journalism is coming, uh, coming active in Japan. But of course, they are not, they don't have a good access to the real sources. Not a uh, very small number of them are uh, uh, but uh, basically they are not reliable sources in terms of accuracy of the information. But still, they are journalists. It's some very, very interesting news stories coming out of YouTube, so-called YouTube journalists. For that, we have to deal with. I want to I want to uh, go to the questions and uh, the irony here is I have an anonymous question so uh, so much for sourcing but um, but it's an interesting question and that's uh, it's for the two international journalists how do you evaluate the effects of reports from Washington on your consumers at home and I think the context for this is obviously the the partisanship that's going on in Washington and and the difficulty of of really sorting out uh, facts from uh, we'll just say, you know, political gamesmanship these days in, in, in our nation's capital. So, um, Sanya, you start. Thank you, thank you. Uh, being a uh, being a reporters in D.C., we of ninety percent of our stories about White House and the State State Department. And uh, frankly speaking, to be honest, the troubling thing is uh, stories from White House when the president makes uh, makes remarks. It uh, it gets uh, it makes a huge headline, front page headline in Japan, but it, many of them ended up, uh, turns out to be a kind of false information or misleading, misleading, or some pop-up idea to make himself, to make the government look better. But we should do that. We have to, we need to do that. And you do? I mean, if you, if you feel like it's just in order to get a reaction, do you, I mean, do you have to report, I mean, essentially it gets back to the question of whether you're participating in the story. You're, in effect, the White House knows what it's doing when it puts out certain kinds of information that might, you know, they certainly did this, by the way, in India um, before the president's visit. Mm -hmm. um, we do filter and we, we judge the, the size of the, uh, the length of the story. 
judging by our, our experience, but if, the, if it's a misleading or not. But still, stories are stories, and sometimes yeah. it hits the head front line. Of course, we don't we don't uh, send a distribute a long story when he said when the president says you know uh, this infection uh, that the disinfection medicine works for the corona. Yeah, yeah, and I actually in Takami, I want yeah. Uh, in fact, is we are kind of having a trouble when. Uh, Japan in Japan, the audience, audience and the readers, readers look look to Japan, look to U.S. as a sort of role model of democracy. When things are so so troubled, messed up, uh, people people and uh, policy makers start to misunderstand the real 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 value of the policy makers. Uh, Takumi, you did say one thing. I just wanted to clarify: the State Department, though you, you were talking about the White House, the State Department actually, you 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 pretty much you do get good information from the State Department still. Yeah. I, I, okay. Yes. Good. Yeah. No, I mean it, it, that's inter it's interesting to note. Uh, Elmar, I'm, I'm curious as to how you've been dealing with reports from Washington. Yeah, I, I mean we report from Washington and we uh, try to show both sides, and there are mostly both sides. Um, so we we are in the reporting, I think we're impartial, but uh, when the point comes when either side is uh, distributing falsehoods and lies, we call them uh, call them this the, the, that way we we call them lies as opposed to you know this is just information or so uh, and and then also deliver the perspective that makes clear that those are lies. so we are reporting to Germany, I think about the political events uh, and then in our audience we see from the feedback that we are getting that most of the uh, viewers um, they they think they are well informed about what's going on in the united states but there is a number and it's not a small number there is a number of people who think that we are biased if we call a lie a lie because they get their information from other sources as well through social media and they might even follow, you know, some conspiracy platforms or whatever. So we get that in the feedback as feedback as well. And that's exactly the reason why we try to do what I'm doing here right now, uh, traveling through the country, talking to the people, talking to people from all sides. And just coincidentally, without having set up something beforehand uh, as opposed to you know know what your story will be know what your protagonist will be we just go out now we drove more than 4,000 miles through 12 states um, because we wanted to listen to people hear their point of view what issues are important to them and by doing that and then reporting it to Germany, I think it helps to show to our audience that we are not biased. We are trying to get um, to, to the bottom of, of everything. And I think that helps us a lot. So I do want to remind everybody that, uh, we're, that uh, the panelists are happy to take questions and click on the bottom. I, I won't uh, call them out by name, but I do note that there are a couple of former uh, journalists uh, who also became members of Congress who are on our on our on this call, so I hope that they will uh, ask some questions. I do want to ask, and I, and I know this is very very challenging, but what kind of solutions do you think might help both in, in, increase the credibility of, of journalism right now, um, or the interest in credible sources um, that we have uh, that that you think are, are are plausible? Any ideas on that? 
You know, there are a number of, uh, in the United States at least, and I assume also uh, perhaps in Germany and Japan or Europe and Japan, um, sort of nonprofit organizations that have emerged to try and uh, essentially create, I mean, what you're saying, which is to foster better trust in media to try and, um, in a sense, truth squad or sift what you consider to be good or bad sources, some of the, um, you know, social media platforms themselves, which I think now would admit in retrospect that they haven't done an adequate job of, of policing content that gets posted there or trying to flag that more. Um, but, you know, Dan, it's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing, which is, um, you know, whereas, we're, 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 we're as good as, you know, they say that, that you get the democracy you deserve. Um, uh, you know, you get the journalism that you deserve in a way that, um, you know, we're not separate from the culture that we live in right now. And I mean, the, the fundamental foundation of journalism is that people can agree on facts, right? That I can tell you that there's a fact and everyone can agree that that's a fact. And I think one of the disturbing things right now is that that foundation is really eroding. Um, and we don't know how far it's eroding. And part of it, partly it's our job to try and counter that, but partly, you know, we're as much a, a beholden to that phenomenon as, as anybody else. And, and I think there's a broader civic question. I don't mean to be punting or, or, or sort of avoiding the question, but I think there's a broader civic question about, you know, what can we as a society agree on across the board? Mm. Yeah, that's certainly true. And if um, I, I, I mentioned it beforehand, I think number one is rules, uh, ethical rules for journalists. Number two, transparency. Number three, connect with the audiences better. You know, really don't sit in your ivory tower and report, but connect with people and, and listen to their stories. That's number three. And number four, I think it's an educational problem as well. Um, you need to in, in school, um, pe people should be able to learn how to dissect this huge amount of noise that is out there and, and find the signals that are reliable. And if an indicator of that is when the signal comes from an organization that has rules, that makes everything transparent, that connects with the base, I think that's a good start. Um, and also I think, um, what we cannot change is what, um, and Paul quoted Thomas Jefferson at the beginning of this. Thomas Jefferson is also the one who said, well, you shouldn't read newspapers because they are filled with lies and falsehoods. And uh, if you don't read anything, you are closer to the truth than you are when you read something and read newspapers. That he said or wrote actually, in his late time when he was president because he didn't like what the media were doing. They were, you know, putting the checks on him. They were controlling him. And I think that is the core thing that we have to transport to society, how important it is that there are media that uh, control the powerful. And, and I think then we have a chance to regain the trust. Takami san. I think we are, um, we are sticking to the basic basic um, value of a journalism, being accurate, being honest, being um, doing a double cross check, cross check of the sources. And uh, now the difference from the old days is that the audience and the readers can make a, a cross check of our stories very quickly, very accurately. So 
what we need to do is what we are doing is listen to listen to uh, honest listen honestly to the, the feedback from the the readers when all days when there's a call from the readers or audience we just we, we get the phone and listen to them and just hang up and forget but now we uh, take the, the feedbacks very serious in terms of fact in terms of uh, their opinions through that probably little by little by little with a daily daily effort we can uh, keep the trust of the people yeah no it's very interesting what you all say in energy what um, Elmar, what you said about Jefferson, because it is kind of interesting, I, because of the COVID uh, crisis being home, I've found that I can just read every read news a day or two after it happens. And that has been a huge help in being able to sort out the immediate from the non-immediate. Of course, I don't have that one of that luxury when we all go back. Um, we do have a question from Claudine Schneider, former congresswoman from Rhode Island. Uh, and it's, it's a long one, but I'm going to read it because it's very interesting. With the emphasis of being right. Um, I have been on many calls with constitutional lawyers about the what if the elections are close, uh, the presidential election this year, and slow, given state laws and mail-in ballots, we probably won't know on election night. Last night, um, this is Claudine, I was a part of a frightening conversation about hedge fund and Wall Street types trying to determine if they make or lose money uh, uh, um, if that happens, if the election is uh, close. Um, I've always resented it as a former congresswoman, the horse race, uh, TV coverage of election night, might the networks and media in general be willing to take a pact not to report piecemeal to avoid rioting, uh, but rather to wait until November 14th when all of the votes should be counted? I, so, um, well, first, thank you for the question. Um, and it's an honor to, to have you with us, Congressman Schneider. Um, I think I, I understand the sentiment and the ideal behind it. I think it's impossible for a lot of reasons, some of which we've been talking about, which is, you know, if the respected networks and respected news organizations don't report the results, then you've left the field entirely to the, you know, the, the wild, wild west on the internet. Um, and I think the information is going to be a lot worse and a lot more incendiary and a lot more dangerous uh, in that, in that environment. So, I mean, I think that the challenge for us, and I know we're being careful about this and planning for this, as I'm sure everybody is, is to report what you know, only report what you know, and to put it in the proper context. I think that rather than not reporting any results at all, uh, is to make very clear what information you have, what you know about its reliability, and to put it in the context of what that means about where the state of the race is. Now, you know, can you ensure that people aren't going to take that information and be reckless with it? No. Um, but again, if you have the trust from your audience and your readers um, that you are presenting the right context, then hopefully that message gets through. And I would say it starts with the leaders themselves. Uh, of course, we don't have a choice. We will, um, we will have to report, but certainly in a way that we make sure that we are not calling any races before the votes are counted. Um, I'm not so sure if the US networks also will adhere to that, but we'll be very careful and, and we will put it into perspective. But I think the even higher responsibility lies with the two parties and, and their leaders uh, to not jump to conclusions and not uh, declare victory. Because if they do, if they are not reluctant, then we will see and I'm only 
you know, I'm a guest in this country. I'm a visitor, but I, I've been here before. I lived here six years in the 90s. Two of my kids were born here. They're American citizens. I tell you, for me, America is still the shining city on the hill, as Ronald Reagan pointed out in his farewell address. And this is at stake if the leaders are not responsible. And so I really hope that we won't see the worst happening after the election. Nagami, you, yeah, you've just had a change of power in Japan. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think, what do you expect, uh, what, what, what could happen here or might happen here? Actually, and you'll have another election probably in about a year, I think, right? It could, ha could happen, yes. Yeah. And uh, well, the, the interest, um, interest is very high. People are make, uh, having a keen eye on the development of the U.S. Po uh, politics. And already uh, the third, third of November giving me a headache. And we, all I can say is wait, wait, wait for the uh, last moment before running up, moment running up to that day. Right. What, uh, what, what, what both sides will say and how the count, vote counting will look like short time before that. And definitely, uh, the, uh, who's going to be the leader of the United States make a huge impact on the, on the policy and diplomacy in Japan. So we have to be, again, patient and accurate. Uh, right. Um, so we, uh, we really only have time for one more question. So I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna uh, do a quick one to ask uh, all of you to, to wrap up. We've talked about um, how uh, things can improve. Um, in terms of um, young people who do want to enter the field, is there a particular piece of advice that you would give, um, given what you know now compared to what you know, know then? And I'd love to get all three of you, so I'll start with Takami. Oh, oh, just enjoy being the part of the first leaf, first page of the history, because what we are seeing daily basis is, uh, is the, uh, the beginning of the history on any, in, in any field. So just enjoy the change and see Keep keep a better and sharp eye on the on the changes happening in the world and the community. Great, right, Elmar. Thank you. I think be aware of the role that you play in society, which should give you number one, of course, the self confidence that you are important, but at the same time the humility. What happens if you get it wrong? And and if that guides you all the way, I think you should be fine and keep your credibility until the end of the career. <laughs> right, and, and you think that's still possible? Obviously. I think it is, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a, ho a hopeless optimist. Jake? I mean, I, a few things. I mean, one is be very flexible um, and open about developing and expanding your skill sets and looking at media through multiple different lenses. Um, we're redefining our craft all the time. Um, so whether it's writing, whether it's photography, whether it's video, whether it's podcasts, um, but to develop as many technological uh, and, and storytelling approaches as possible. Um, the other is to keep a very open mind, not to come in with a preset bias, um, but to really be ready to listen to all sides of any issue and to be ready to be persuaded that truth is not what you came in thinking it was, um, but also to adhere to the core ideals, which is that to believe that your goal is to tell people the truth, even if they don't necessarily want to hear it. Very interesting, very interesting point to end on. Um, I want to thank uh, all the all the people who 
been watching us in the uh, U.S. former U.S. Association of Former Members of Congress. But I particularly want to thank our three panelists who um, have shown uh, not only are they um, tremendous journalists, but they've also done a lot of thinking about their own careers and um, and what can be done. So I think this was a very very good panel, and um, I will uh, thank all of you and, and toss it quickly back to Paul if there's any housekeeping. We'd like to thank everybody for joining us this, uh, this morning and hopefully you got a lot out of it. Be sure to be monitoring your mailbox for the next invitation to Virtual Roundtable Thursday. <laughs>